This is ADH TV. I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation. The producer is Charlie Noble. And our guest today is a very significant commentator, independent commentator, formerly Deputy Secretary of the Department of Immigration. And uh, that's Dr. Abul Rizvi. Welcome, Abul. Thank you, David. And I see you're very busy. <laughs> now that I'm retired, I have time to dabble in things that I couldn't before. One of the things that you've produced, I don't know if it was in retirement or as you were approaching it, is your excellent book, which is very succinct, but it really is full of information, Population Shock, which was published in 2021 through Monash University. That, that is a, a wonderful book and explains a lot about our immigration policy. Yes, yes. Um, in, in many ways, it, it, what, what I tried to do was to explain to people what happened during the Howard government on immigration policy and why the directions changed. There was a, there's a lot of talk in the media about it, which I found was quite uninformed, so I thought I would sit down and try to explain it. You say that in 2001, the bigger thing for Australia was not so much 9-11 or the Tampa matter, it was the quiet revolution in our, in our population policy. I think you say that, do you not? Yes, yes, and I still believe it. I think uh, what happened on the 1st of July 2001 will have a far greater impact on the future of Australia than either Tampa or 9-11. Before I come to a matter, a, a comment by Dick Smith on Sydney Radio, uh, could you explain to us the point you made in that chapter about how important 2001 was, what was that all about? Well, it was predominantly driven by a great deal of debate that was taking place in, in around 1999, 2000, uh, between Treasury, uh, the Immigration Department, various demographers in Australia and the Productivity Commission which dragged in um, Peter Costello and Philip Ruddock into the d discussion about population ageing and what the projections for Australia look like from an ageing perspective. And that worried uh, both Costello and Ruddock a great deal and it led to some fundamental changes in our immigration policy which essentially said um, overseas students are potentially a significant export growth industry, but more importantly, where we can get overseas students to study the right courses, they become eventually the ideal migrant, having been uh, uh, having developed their qualifications in Australia and having acquired uh, 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 skills relevant to Australia's needs, they would make the ideal migrants. So on the 1st of July, what we changed was both the way we processed overseas students and the pathway we provided them to permanent residence. So they became part of the, the, the uh, composite area for future Australians. Exactly. And in fact, they are now the dominant source of future Australians, overseas students. So and they... more importantly, what they also do is slow the rate at which the population ages. So if you look at the projections in 1999, 
in terms of the rate at which we would age, that has changed very significantly, predominantly because of what the Howard government did on the 1st of July 2001. So this, this uh, contrasts us with, say, Japan and China, where they have very small small families, particularly in China, where it was, it was compulsory under the, pre, under the government to have only one child, they're not able to replace themselves, but we can. Very true. Um, China has some particular difficulties. The one-child policy led to a, a predominance of males over females, with the obvious implications in terms of fertility. Um, they have a very low fertility rate. They abolished their one-child policy and the assumption of the Chinese government was abolishing that policy would suddenly lead to a, a surge in fertility. It did nothing of the sort. Fertility continued to decline in China. China has minimal Im immigration. Indeed, it has net emigration. More people leave China than arrive every year. And as a result, it is facing an extraordinary uh, rate of ageing and population decline. Demographers, even in China, are now saying um, that China's population by the end of this century will be half what it is today. Is the Japanese population falling at a, a bigger rate than the Chinese population? Uh, at the moment, yes. But as you project forward, China's decline will accelerate faster than Japan's decline. And culturally in Australia, how do you think the students fit in with the general Australian population as they become Australian citizens? On the whole, the evidence seems to suggest they fit in quite well, in that having studied in Australia, having gone to an Australian university and, and it become immersed in Australian culture um, at a very, at a relatively young age, helps them in the settlement process very significantly. What it enables them to do is get reasonably good jobs quite quickly, almost as quickly as Australian graduates do. And uh, that enables them, I think, to become part of Australian society much more quickly than if you bring someone directly from overseas who may have studied at an overseas university and, and uh, not be as familiar with Australia. Is there some official policy to imbue the students with what may be called Australian values? Um, there is no official policy to do that. Um, um, multiculturalism, as defined by Gough Whitlam, as defined by Fraser, uh, didn't require that. What ultimately happens, I think, is that you get a melding of cultures and, and uh, the, the aspects of culture that perhaps uh, become most popular are the ones that, that, that we acquire going forward. So uh, we may well end up in a situation where certain aspects of our culture they adopt and certain aspects of their culture we end up adopting. And that's been the nature of immigration for time immemorial. I suppose what we really want is uh, law-abiding citizens who appreciate living in a democracy under the rule of law. Is that the essence of uh, what we want? I think so, and I think that's essentially what we do get. Um, uh, repeated uh, uh, research into in issues of criminality show that new migrants are generally a lower portion of 
people who encounter the the justice system. Um, whether they all agree with our views of democracy, that's a good question, and I suspect you will find a mixture there, as you will find in the Australian population. I can remember a few years ago some statistics were released about uh, those who came in as refugees. And some refugees from certain countries, certain origins, seemed to stay much longer on welfare than others. That, has, that, hasn't, that exercise hasn't been repeated, that is publishing those sorts of statistics. Um, those statistics tend to be... Uh, uh, firstly, um, the longer that people stay on welfare is really dependent on the visa category on which you arrived. If you arrive in one of the skill streams, firstly, you're not allowed to access welfare for four years anyway. So those people have very low rates of access to welfare. In fact, lo significantly lower rates of access to welfare than uh, Australian citizens, Australian-born citizens. On the other hand, people who enter through the humanitarian program will have higher rates of welfare. They have lesser levels of education. They generally have lesser levels of English language ability. And as a result, their ability to transfer into the labour market successfully takes longer. The, the, the standard of English for foreign students, is that, uh, has that uh, been raised? Or is it at a reasonable level? The minimum standard, I mean. Um, yeah. I, I mean, there is a, 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 an underlying standard required, and I would argue that top-tier universities in Australia generally require a higher level than lower tier universities and private vet providers. And that is an issue. I think there would be merit in the government looking very closely at the English language requirements at, that low, at those lower tier universities and at private vet providers. You hear anecdotal complaints from students that uh, Australian born students complaining that uh, in the collective work they have to carry some of the international students. I suppose you hear that too. Yes, you hear of that. And I suspect, um, I suspect once again, that's more of an issue with lower tier universities than, than um, the higher tier universities in Australia, where standards are less likely to be um, un uh, allowed to be undermined. I, I noticed that uh, they've just published some, uh, some reports, I think, from the Times of the standing of Australian universities, which have apparently slipped from the higher standards that they had more recently. But I, I noticed that uh, one, of the, one of the weaknesses, if this is a weakness of Australian universities, is the, the proportion, the very high proportion of students to teachers in Australian universities compared with some foreign universities. Yes, that's probably the case. Uh, certainly the, the top tier universities in the United States, um, Europe, UK, would probably have better teacher-student ratios than Australian universities have. My suspicion that's a function of both, both the corporatisation of Australian universities. They operate much more like a business today than they did 30, 40 years ago. And, and secondly, I think um, steady reduction in, uh, in funding. Mm. To, to an extent, the introduction of foreign students as a business 
has changed the nature of the universities. They've become more businesses looking for foreign universities and treating Australian students as the as uh, normal and that keeps them going, but that the foreign students really bring in the business. Is that a good thing for all of our universities to be doing? Um, yes and no. I think there's nothing wrong with Australia taking advantage of the fact that we have good universities and are attractive to foreign students. Um, the extent of reliance on foreign students by universities is something that needs to be managed. I personally have a view that in any class, if you have more than 20%, say, foreign students, that is problematic. Mm. And I think there ought to be standards in that regard put in place. I know those sorts of issues have been looked at from time to time, but generally governments have been reluctant to become involved um, too, too closely in that area. The view being, well, the view being taken by universities is that's none of your business. The ideal, as we see it, of uh, residential universities with uh, high ratios of teachers to staff, uh, which we, we, we see in a, at least many American universities and some British universities, isn't necessarily followed by other countries. The French universities are not at all like that. I went to a French university and uh, it's much more like the Australian University of today, where you most of the people, and particularly in subjects like law, perhaps it's different in medicine, seem to be uh, working full-time and also are full-time students and uh, fit in the university when it suits them. Yes, I, I feel nervous about that. I can't comment on the situation overseas, but certainly in Australia, I feel nervous about the idea of particularly overseas students uh, working full-time as well as studying. I just don't think that's compatible. I don't think that's sensible. And I think uh, the, the fact that we've had a period there where we gave overseas students unlimited work rights was a serious mistake. And uh, in addition, we also licensed a number of private providers as universities. Not that there's anything wrong with that in principle, but that could be abused, could it not, in terms of... Uh, people working full-time and having hardly any time to do their studies, which was apparently yes. the sole reason or the principal reason of their being in Australia. Uh, you probably didn't hear it, but uh, at the time we were recording this, there was a, a comment by Dick Smith on uh, Sydney Radio, 2GB Radio, and he said that on the, his calculations, based on the current rate of increase of the population. Our population at the middle of the century will be about 50 million. At the end of the century, the population, if it continues, will be 157 million, which he thought was not really something we could sustain. Do you have a view on that sort of calculation? I think, I think two things about that sort of calculation. Firstly, what's happened in the last uh, 18 months is an aberration and in many ways it's the result of a, a set of policy settings that were in place during COVID which uh, uh, both the coalition government and then the Albanese government were too slow to unwind and so extrapolating on the basis of an aberration doesn't seem very sensible to me. Um, the secondly, 
uh, I would say uh, there is a range of measures the government has taken in the last uh, three or four months and will take in the next few months, which will mean the current rate of uh, uh, immigration won't be sustained over the long term. Um, so I think, once again, uh, extrapolating on that basis just doesn't make a lot of sense if you're looking at what's actually happening with policy. Um, 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 I would say, though, that I think both the coalition and the Labor government have failed Australia in their reluctance to set what I believe would be a sensible long-term net migration target. Both both sides of politics have been reluctant to do that. And I think uh, the more that we can encourage both sides of politics to declare a long-term position on net migration levels, the better it would be for everyone concerned in terms of our long-term planning of infrastructure, housing, the labour market, government service delivery, uh, uh, business planning, all of those things would benefit from a long-term net migration target that governments um, um, adhered to. This seems to be particularly so in the eastern capitals and it seems to be more in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, is it true to say that most immigrants seem to come to, the, to Sydney and Melbourne rather than to other parts of the country? Uh, a high portion do, um, understandably, given the size of those two cities. Um, there are substantial policies in place, however, that uh, uh, seek to encourage migrants to settle in other parts of Australia. Um, I remember Philip Ruddock was particularly keen on developing those policies, and indeed uh, many of the policies that are in place at the moment are those that Ruddock uh, designed. One of the one of the problems, of course, in, in encouraging people to go to other parts of Australia is whether the jobs are there, whether whether they can exist well in those areas and. Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane seem to be the areas which prove attractive. Why, why is it that more migrants don't go to Western Australia? I, the, the, the portion of migrants that go to Western Australia fluctuates quite considerably depending on the state of the Western Australian economy. Mm. There have been periods when Western Australia has actually dominated the intake. When, when the mining booms on, um, Western Australia gets a disproportionately high portion of migrants. When the migrant mining boom falls away, um, it gets a lower portion. Uh, Western Australia is probably the biggest um, cyclical fluctuator in terms of attracting migrants. We, we seem to have a particular problem in relation to people who come into Australia on, a, on a, an ordinary visa, tourist or student, who then decide towards the end of their period that they're really, they really wish to claim refugee status. And we seem to be very generous in terms of providing legal assistance in relation to attending to that uh, status. Uh, that, I gather, has led to a, 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 about 100,000 people falling into that category. Is that correct? Yes, um, th that has been an issue for a very long time. It's not a new issue. What's changed was in about 2015-16, we had what I would describe as an organised, a highly organised labour trafficking scam abusing the asylum system. It predominantly came out of Malaysia and then extended into China, from to people from China. 
And what we found was the government uh, at the time seemed to be paralysed as to what to do about it. And so the numbers started shooting up, the backlogs got bigger, the processing times got longer. Various measures were taken subsequently that slowed the intake or, or, or the, the number of applications for asylum from Malaysia. But by then, the size of the backlog had become so large that more people from more nationalities started to take advantage of that just on an opportunistic basis. It's hard, um, to, it's uh, hard to see a basis for making an asylum claim coming from Malaysia unless you could claim it on the basis of being Chinese, you're being disadvantaged by the Malay policies of the Malayan government. Yes, uh, the, the, the success rate for Malaysian nationals applying for asylum is very, very low, understandably very low, and those that do get through tend to get through on the grounds that they were being discriminated based on the basis of their, um, their, uh, their homosexuality. Well, that, that, uh, is, is there a vigorous policy in, by the Malaysian government in relation to homosexuality? Uh, homosexuality is a criminal offence in Malaysia. It used to be in New South Wales. Not that within well, living too. memory. <laughs> uh, but yes. uh, uh, the, the fact is that uh, it's, it may be not really seriously enforced expect, except against public offences. Um, should there be some sort of declaration that you make when you come in to Australia as a as a tourist or a student to the effect that you're not going to claim refugee status, that you have no intention of claiming refugee status, which perhaps that could be binding. Would that be one way of dealing with this problem? I think you're simplistic? going to the issue of how the Refugee Convention is designed, and it was, oh, yes. as you know, designed in 1951, <laughs> and, and uh, many lawyers would argue that such a requirement would be contrary to the 51 Convention. Um, they would probably argue that, I imagine, successfully. Um, um, uh, it, 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 there is a bigger picture issue here about the asylum, uh, the Refugee Convention, and whether the government or the governments of the world collectively can find a way of modernising that. In my view, that should be led by the UNHCR rather than individual governments. The risk is if individual governments lead it, what they will tend to do is, is play beggar thy neighbour, where, where they will push the problem to other nations, and that, that doesn't help. Um, I, 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 until something like that happens, and I'm not, I'm not in any uh, doubt that that would take um, years, decades or more, um, each government has to work out how it's going to best manage in this space the risk is if the numbers become very large, governments become more and more harsh. And in becoming more and more harsh, what they end up doing is both um, affecting genuine refugees as well as the non-genuine. Um, harsh policies tend to be blunt. Um, um, I think Australia has to act in this space. I've been encouraging or writing about this now for seven or eight years. Uh, 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 the failure of governments to act in this space has been really disappointing. Um, I think uh, the media has also failed in this space to adequately highlight what's happening. Um, I, I would blame both the left and the right media on that. 
Um, hopefully, um, the government will begin to act in this space, but act in such a way that it doesn't uh, diminish or, or, or risk the refoulement of genuine refugees. I suppose the, uh, if, if you had a Trump-style government administration, that could be dealt with. But of course, in the United States, the United States hasn't entered into as many conventions and treaties as Australia has because it's so difficult to ratify a convention in the United States requiring the support of the Senate. Yes. Perhaps it should yes. be more difficult no. to enter into conventions. Well, there is a process that Australia goes through in that regard. Um, I'm not sure we, there's a lot we can do about the 51 Convention now. You could always um, uh, denounce part of it, couldn't you? For example, if, if a government wanted to, they could, uh, they could escape from uh, that, an obligation which is stopping them from enforcing what is a, a sensible policy. I don't know. I, I, I'm not across the, the depth of the legal and constitutional issues that would raise. Uh, I, would, I would need to ask a constitutional lawyer about that question. Um, um, uh, you know, even even Donald Trump didn't didn't abrogate from the 51 Convention. Um, he just wanted to build a wall and get Mexico to pay for it. Um, um, but even building a wall doesn't really solve the problem because uh, the level of movement, for example, across the Mexico-US border is huge. It's one of the most uh, crossed borders on the planet. Um, uh, 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 how you can facilitate trade and traffic across such a border while stopping asylum seekers is really, really difficult. And that's why this problem will, will, will be around for the United States for a long time, even if Mr Trump's wall is built. We see this in Europe, don't we, of the enormous number of people moving from Africa into Europe. Yes, yes, and that is also a really difficult issue to, to, to address. Um, I would not pretend to understand the complexities of that situation. I, I understand the Australian situation, but I don't understand the European situation. I certainly don't think, uh, uh, well, uh, certainly the United Kingdom is struggling to work out how to go forward in this space. They seem to lurch from one idea to the next. Do you think that the government should be having regard to the housing in Australia when it is developing its immigration policy? The, you know, the, the amount of housing that there is in Australia. Absolutely. Uh, not just housing, but broader infrastructure, government service delivery, all those issues. In my view, um, it, it is very hard to run a net migration policy where the annual level of net migration starts to approach 300,000. That seems to me to be a limit, a high, a high limit. It's probably too high at 300. On the other hand, trying to get it below 150,000 per annum would also be very difficult. Um, the government's got to find that middle ground somehow and then try to develop and deliver a policy along that middle ground. What Was it when, uh, when the government came down very harshly on uh, people of just arriving. I think it was the Howard government, Mr Howard, announcing that uh, we, will, we will decide who comes into this country and on what terms. Uh, it was then that uh, he, as, as the, 
the corollary of that, he then significantly in, increased the amount of migration, lawful migration into Australia. Was it, that was what you were talking about in Population, Population Shock, your book, was it not? Yes, yes, very true. Um, he did act, as everyone knows, very strongly in terms of boat arrivals. Um, um, and at the same time, he significantly increased immigration in terms of the skill stream. So that uh, boat arrivals is no, are no longer is an issue in Australia. Um, um, it's significant. Uh, only the legacy, um, only the legacy caseload is an issue. Um, we haven't had a successful boat arrival since two thousand and fourteen. And it's a very dangerous thing for those entering into it, isn't it? It's not to be encouraged yes, just from the point of view of safety. No. In relation to the status of people for, for who, who were coming on the boats, they were invariably coming, were they not, from places which were not places where they were being persecuted. If they were being persecuted, it was in another country, not in, say, Indonesia. Yes, they had uh, passed through what are called transit countries, uh, but predominantly transit countries who also don't have, um, who have not signed up to the 51 Convention, so the question of whether they could get protection in those countries remained uh, uh, an issue. Um, um, the people who did arrive were generally found to be refugees, and most of them, including the ones who arrived on Tampa, for example, uh, all of the... I mean, people often forget that the Howard government, uh, with its offshore processing policy, uh, eventually did resettle... 90 plus percent of those people in Australia. A small percentage were in other countries, predominantly New Zealand, but the bulk of the people who arrived during that period under Mr Howard were resettled in Australia by Mr Howard. Later we had that peculiar arrangement with the United States. Did we not about uh, sending some of our people our surplus people to the United States and taking some of theirs, which Mr. Trump was he, he was uh, he had uh, words with Malcolm Turnbull over, did he not? Yes, yes, he did. Um, I mean, that was because uh, both political parties had decided those people would not be resettled in Australia, and so uh, uh, the the previous government uh, decided they shouldn't go to New Zealand because they'd come to Australia. <laughs> which was actually a bit of a furphy because most of the people who were set, resettled in New Zealand after Tampa, for example, remained in New Zealand. They didn't come to Australia. Um, um, so we decided the United States was better than New Zealand because it was further away, I imagine. Um, and uh, a, a substantial portion of the people who arrived by boat after Mr Kevin Rudd reintroduced boat policy um, have been resettled in, in the United States but a substantial portion remain and they are in Australia. And there's a question of what government's gonna do about that. The previous government was, was hoping the problem would just somehow disappear. That wasn't gonna happen. The current government has provided a pathway to permanent residence for those people who secured temporary protection. That's about 19,000 people. But there's another 12,000 who are here in Australia who have not been successful in, in, in um, meeting the requirements for asylum and securing refugee status, but they've now been here over 10 years. I don't see either political party successfully removing them. 
the uh, that's a very difficult thing to do, isn't it? Even when people are here illegally, uh, the number the number yes. of uh, people who've come here illegally who've been deported is quite small, is it not? Yes. Uh, it is very difficult. Is, is the present government, in your view, is it uh, is it really uh, adopting a big Australia policy? Um, well, uh, uh, interestingly, in the recent intergenerational report the government issued, it used the identical net migration and fertility assumptions as Mr Frydenberg's 2021 intergenerational report. So... On the one hand, I think you would say both political parties would say, well, our long-term position is the same. Um, but both political parties will also point at each other and say, no, 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 you're for big Australia, I'm not. So they both say that. So the Labor Party points to the previous government on the basis that Mr Frydenberg, prior to the 2021 intergenerational report, in his 2019 budget, assumed a level of net migration and fertility that would have led to the biggest big Australia projection we've ever had. So the current government points to that. The opposition points to the current government to say, but you've allowed net migration to rise to over 400,000. You must believe in a big Australia. Uh, the, the, the response to that from the current government is, yes, but that was predominantly because of policy settings introduced during COVID, and we are now starting to trying to... Uh, uh, pull that back, and that's taking time. So, I mean, the arguments here are on both sides, really. Um, I wouldn't be so fussed about what's happened in the last uh, 18 months or so, because I think whoever was in government would have started tightening up. The question is, what's the policy for the long term? And I fear that neither the coalition nor the nor the uh, Labor Party will be prepared to commit to a long-term policy and to commit to delivering that. It's important, isn't it, that the general population support the immigration policy that is adopted in the country, not that there be a strong feeling against it. And I think there is a there seems to be hostility to the level of immigration at the moment, particularly uh, in those parts of the country where there don't seem to be sufficient houses and where the infrastructure is subject to enormous, what we would regard as enormous stress and strain. That's very true. That's very true. And I think, <clears throat> once again, that goes back to the importance of both political parties, I think, uh, explaining the long-term immigration policy for Australia. Um, I think the period in which we had the most success with managing immigration was, was really during the Menzies years when both Menzies and Cornwall had a bipartisan approach to immigration. Now, it was a very high level of immigration at the time, but because it was bipartisan, there was bipartisan support, there was less politics around it and there was much more commitment to the development of infrastructure to support such a high level of immigration. Mm. Well, I was around at that time uh, and... Uh... I could see what was happening, and it was certainly popular. It was something which caused little objection. Of course, there was a minor amount of friction, but nothing significant. Uh, and the, mm. the friction was more cultural than anything else. And, and it was trivial. Uh, there were 
great advantages in the mixture of cultures. And the same when uh, the government moved to abandon completely the old white Australia policy, which really began under Menzies. Menzies weakened it. Mm, and, not, or, that's was not it Holt? quite right. Was it Holt? It was Harold Holt, yes. yes. There is a famous line where, where apparently um, um, the Minister for Immigration at the time, when... Uh, Menzies had announced his retirement. Oppenheimer was Minister for Immigration. Holt was Treasurer and was due to become Prime Minister. And Oppenheimer asked about bringing forward a Cabinet submission to start unwinding the White Australia policy. Mm -hmm. And Holt says to Oppenheimer, look, just wait for the old guy to retire <laughs> before you bring this forward. And he did. And the, the submission came forward in April of 1966 and it was ticked off. And that started the end of the White Australia policy. It wasn't was it wasn't formally abolished at that stage, was it? No. So it wasn't formally abolished until Whitlam in seventy three. Mm. But but the process was a slow, a gradual one. And what Whitlam did was was give it the coup de grace. It, it was effectively all over. Yes. By seventy three. Well. Without immigration, we obviously would be we we would be receding in our population, would we not? What what's the fertility oh, rate? Absolutely. Yes. How does yes. our fertility yes. rate compare with China or Japan? So our fertility rate is at the moment around one point six, one point seven. Oh, so it's uh, higher than. Uh, is is it higher than China and Japan? Yes, significantly higher, but what? still below replacement level. Do fertility rates vary significantly between immigrants and old Australians? Um, uh, uh, over the long term, no. They tend to converge. Um, in, in, indeed, we have a situation now where the Greeks and Italians in Australia have a fertility rate that seems more similar to Greeks and Italians in Eastern Italy. And they're low in those countries now, are they not? Yes, very low. Greece and Italy, particularly Italy, was notorious for having large families. That period has completely ended in Italy, has it not? Yes, it has. It has. Um, in, indeed, Italy is facing probably a rate of population ageing faster than most countries in Europe now. Mm. And, and the United Kingdom? It, it's an extraordinary situation where Italy is facing massive ageing and a shrinking population, and at the same time is unable to manage the arrival of boats from Africa to mm. its borders. The, the interesting thing for a person of my age is that uh, uh, the, the reason why Italy had a high birth rate was attributed, or much of it was attributed to Catholic teaching, which of course was against contraception. And that was thought to be the reason. And of course, it's had no effect, uh, Catholic teaching has had no effect on the decline of the population in Italy. Is Italy one of the worst cases in Europe of a declining population? Yes, yes, very much so. So Greece, Italy, Spain are the ones that are facing the, the fastest rate of decline. Abel, if you, were, if you were advising an Australian government, whether the present one or whatever replaces the current one, what would your argument be in relation to the establishment of a, a, a 
a population policy which would be appropriate for the country and which would have the support of the country. What would you recommend or would it be the process of determining this? I think, I think the process of determining it is, is as important as the policy itself. I think you've got to take the Australian population with you in terms of developing such a, such a policy. Uh, the, the real difficulty will be, um, you know, the, 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 the polarisation of politics in, in not just Australia but many places would make such a process really, really difficult. So if someone, if whichever party took this on, they would be taking on a very difficult uh, process um, that's not to say uh, they shouldn't do that. They should do that because it's the right thing to do. I think it would be good if the government could explain the limits of immigration, uh, the range of net migration that is that is achievable. I think getting below 150,000 is administratively and policy-wise legally very, very difficult. I think getting up to 300,000 is dangerous because that creates all sorts of difficulties in terms of infrastructure, government service delivery, housing, et cetera. Uh, the interesting thing is at that high level, which is what the Business Council of Australia wants, which most of the big business lobby groups want, um, what you need is enormous investment in infrastructure, housing, et cetera, to manage such a high level of population. But at the same time, those lobby groups are arguing for cuts in government spending, cuts in infrastructure spending, cuts in all sorts of things. I can't see how they can they can argue for both. You can only, only argue for one or the other. It makes no sense to me to argue for both. And I think governments should explain the limits of both the high end and the low end and explain why the level somewhere in the middle makes the most sense for the long term. And it should then, having done that, show how its policies would, will actually deliver that. Having a target is one thing, you need to be able to deliver it. Does, does it also involve governments trying to ensure that there is the potential for development of big areas for housing away from the capitals, for example, in northern Queensland and places like that and other places by providing water to, to allow for the big-scale development that you find in the United States all over the United States? Absolutely. The government would need to explain how the level of net migration it identified uh, uh, reconciled with infrastructure development, housing development, government service delivery, all of those things. I think that, that, has, that, that, that that's essential. Absolutely. One of the, I think one of the advantages the United States has is the number of states in the United States which militate against the concentration that you find in Australia in the state capitals. The state capitals are enormous compared with the rest of the country. And I, I think yes. that's a, that's a, a factor of uh, our, the way we've arranged our federation. We have had no new states in this country. No, no. I, and I live in a part of Australia where I won't have um, the same political rights as anybody else because I'm not in a state. So your vote in the referendum will have uh, half the influence of uh, the vote of somebody in New South Wales, or only part of the influence of the vote of New South Wales. Absolutely. You wouldn't, Absolutely. Be, you wouldn't be arguing for state status for the ACT, would you? I think that would be unconstitutional. 
I, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Um, certainly, I think there is an argument that um, the ACT having only two senators and Tasmania having 12 senators seems a little unfair. Uh, only it's, it's fair historically. Yes, historically <laughs> fair. <laughs> yes. Uh, but it, it does seem to be strange. Though, of course, this is being used as a justification to increase the number of territorial senators for obvious political advantage. It would affect the Senate remarkably, wouldn't yes, it, it would. if you had, if you had, say, 12 senators for the ACT yes, in it Parliament. Would. It would. And, and uh, the problem with capitals, yeah. the problem with capitals, at least separate capitals, not integrated capitals like London and Paris, separate capitals like Washington and, uh, and Canberra is that the capitals tend to vote in one way, which would complete, would, would ensure that uh, the other party would be completely hostile to the increase in yes. Senate representation. Well, the, it's highly likely. Yes. How do, you get, how do you get a consensus from the population about the level of uh, population growth? I think, I think you don't start um, lecturing them. You start through a process of education. And, and we haven't done that for a long time. I think uh, Menzies and Cornwall were successful with immigration because they educated the Australian public about the issues and how things were going to be managed. I think we've stopped doing that. I think, I think we've got to help the Australian public understand issues of demography. I think we could help Mr Dick Smith understand demography better. <laughs> to, to what extent... I think is, that would be a good start. Yes. To what extent, though, is, uh, the, was the success of uh, Menzies and Caldwell based on the proposition that uh, you needed a big population to defend the country, which is the position taken by the New South Wales opposition leader, I understand. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Certainly the defence was a, a, an element of the argument, but I think what most people saw was uh, uh, the need to develop um, develop our own industries just as much as the defence side of things. So uh, uh, people saw the merits of the Snowy Mountain Scheme. People saw the merits of Australia having a car industry. And if you were going to have a large car industry, you needed the people to, to, to supply the labour. Yes, I doubt whether it was a consideration of Imperial Japan as to the number of people living in Australia in, in their no. decision whether to bomb Darwin no. or not. I don't, I don't think it was yeah, relevant I, I, to... I, it would never be no. relevant. I, I doubt whether that was the issue. And, yes. and I doubt whether Australians really thought of it that way. But I do think um, in the 50s, Australians understood the need to develop our manufacturing industry. Yes. Do, is there a need to do that now? I think so. I think so. I think we need to... It would be of a different type to, you know, to the 50s. Mm. Um, it, it, we need to focus on manufacturing industries that take advantage of high skill levels and high levels of education. That's the kind of industry we should be looking for. And uh, 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 I know governments have considered that from time to time, but generally, um, generally Australian governments, certainly over the last 30 years, have... Have, have, have been influenced by a, a policy of governments shouldn't pick winners 
And as a result, what that's done is meant governments have just retreated. I don't think that's worked effectively for Australia. I think to some degree governments have to pick winners. In relation to manufacturing? Yes, in relation to manufacturing. We have to know where we're going in terms of manufacturing industry and we need to invest in that. Would that involve the processing of minerals rather than just sending that them raw overseas? Absolutely. That, that would be a very good thing. That would be a very good thing. It seems More processing to, of minerals in Australia. It seems to be an obvious thing, doesn't it, that, that would, there would be an advantage in doing that, particularly as manufacturing now is less dependent on uh, unskilled labour. Yes. So yes, much as absolutely. We need to focus on industries that take advantage of the skill level of Australians. Mm. Well, these are all fascinating questions and you're obviously making a major contribution and uh, I will recommend to many viewers, if they want to read more, to have a look at Population Shock, which was published by Monash, which is an excellent book and it explains a lot of how we got to the position we are today, particularly that period when, uh, as you say, more important decisions were taken that have a greater effect on Australia than 9-11 or Tampa. And I think that's a, yes. a, a very wise provision. Uh, now the, you're making a major contribution to the debate in Australia, and I think that is very important. So I must thank you and thank you for being generous with us today and giving us a longer interview than is usual. Thank you so much, Avul. You're most welcome, Ben, and thank you thank for the you. opportunity. Okay. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye. This is ADH-TV. The program is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble, and uh, until next time.